The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org.
Okay. Um, so I call this meeting to order. Um, welcome to the July 28th, 2022 electronic meeting of the Environmental Commission. This meeting is in accordance with executive orders from the governor to affect social distancing and mitigate the spread of the COVID-19 virus. We intend to conduct this meeting similarly to an in-person meeting. However, please be patient if there are technical issues. Public comment will be via telephone only. To speak during any of the public comment opportunities, please call 877-853-5247 and enter meeting ID 989-2851-1637. Again, uh, the phone number to call is 877-853-5247. And the meeting ID is 989-2851-1637. This information is also available on the published agenda in the public notices section of the city website and on the broadcast of this meeting on CTM channel 16, AT&T channel 99, and online at www.a2gov.org slash watchctn, one word. Okay, let's see. Um, Galen, do you want to read the land heritage statement? I sure will. Land heritage statement. I acknowledge that the land the city of Ann Arbor occupies is the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, including Odawa, Ojibwe, and Bodawadmi and Wyandotte peoples. I further acknowledge that our city stands like almost all property in the United States on lands obtained generally in unconscionable ways from indigenous peoples. The taking of this land was formalized by the Treaty of Detroit in 1807. Knowing where we live, work, study, and recreate does not change the past, but a thorough understanding of the ongoing consequences of this past can empower us in our work to create a future that supports human flourishing, and justice for all individuals. The land heritage state. Hey, thank you, Galen. Um, do you want to go to the roll call? Sure. All righty. Commissioner Needham. Commissioner Needham. Councilmember Dish. Councilmember Dish, Commissioner Graham, Commissioner Graham, Councilmember Griswold. Here. Commissioner Colliwart. Here. Chairperson Brown. I'm present here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Mursky. Here in Ann Arbor. Vice Chairperson Mitchell. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Vandenbroek. Commissioner Vandenbroek. Commissioner Oriel. Commissioner Oriel. Commissioner Marson. I'm present in Ann Arbor. Okay. Commissioner Gruber. Here in Ann Arbor. Commissioner Needrich. 
Commissioner Needrich. All right, we have a quorum. All right, thank you, Galen. Um, so the next item on the agenda is the approval of the agenda. Um, the, uh, do I have a motion to approve the agenda? Um, okay, uh, Shannon, raise your hand. Um, do I have a second? Kathy, um, any suggestions for changes? I don't hear any. So um, all who approve the agenda as submitted, now raise your hands or say aye. 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 Okay, it looks like it's unanimous. So um, the next item on the agenda is the approval of the minutes. Um, Might I interrupt real quick? Sure. I miss uh, Commissioner Gibb Randall. <laughs> President <laughs> Ann Arbor. <laughs> yes, um, we got to fix that on Legistar. Ooh. Okay, let's see how long that takes. So um, let's see. So let's move on to the approval of the minutes from the last meeting. So moved. Um, do I have a second? Um, Bridget Gruber seconds the meeting. Seconds. Um, all who uh, approve the minutes as written, uh, raise your hand or say aye. 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 Any opposed? I'm abstaining because I didn't attend the last meeting. Okay. And uh, John Mursky abstained. Okay. Thank you, John. So uh, let's see. The next uh, item on the agenda is public commentary. So this is uh, the first of two opportunities for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 1-887-853-5247 and enter meeting ID 989-2851-1637. This information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and the video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand and indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You will hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. And be patient, there is a delay of up to 30 seconds before a connection is established. So again, the meeting, the, uh, the number to call is 877-853-5247. And the meeting ID is 989-2851-1637. So is there anybody on the line yet, Galen? There's no one for public commentary at this time. Okay. Let's wait another 10 seconds or so. Okay. Meanwhile, let me um, share my screen. Okay, can everybody see this? Yep. 
Okay, while I'm speaking, I would like to uh, I would like to uh, transfer my duties as chair to the vice chair, Rita Mitchell. Is that okay, Rita? I'll do it. Thank you. Okay. So um, let's see. Uh, is there anybody still on the line, Galen? There's no one. Okay. All right, well, thank you. Uh, this ends the public comment period. Uh, we will have another one at the end of the meeting. Um, thank you. So um, I thought it was high time, like I, I, uh, I have been following PFAS contamination for several years um, um, as a member of the Sierra Club. And um, I thought it was time for me to maybe present some of the information to the commission and the general public here in Ann Arbor. Um, so PFAS, uh, what are they? Well, they are a set of compounds, and this, this is an acronym for either and perfluorinated alkyl substances and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. They used to be called PFCs, um, uh, which stood for perfluorochemicals, but that nomenclature um, has been replaced by PFAS, PFAS, uh, for the last 10 years. But if you go back through the literature, you can sometimes find references to PFCs, but they're talking really about the same thing. Um, now, let's see. First thing is, let's um, just get some basic definition, definitions and key facts and figures straight. Um, PFAS is an umbrella term uh, for some 10,000 synthetic chemicals. Uh, they have multiple chemical fluorine bonds. There are several definitions uh, worldwide. Um, right now, the European Union officially has the most stringent um, definition. Uh, the EPA has one that's um, almost as stringent. It's very close to it. Um, but uh, the basic, the basic uh, uh, problem with PFAS compounds is their persistence in the environment and the body. These are chemicals like PCBs, PVDs that can be absorbed. Uh, they can enter into synthetic pathways. They can enter into biochemical pathways in mammals and in plants. And they are, are not, you know, they're not able to be detoxified. Um, some of them are not able to be excreted readily. And um, all the ones that have been investigated so far do have health risks. So, however, they have not been well studied. Um, they've been, um, these compounds have been made in large quantities since 1948. Um, they've been in the, there are millions and millions of tons have been um, released into the environment, mostly through consumer products um, for decades. Um, however, nobody, uh, nobody chose to uh, fund any, um, any health consequences for chronic exposures. The thing is that these compounds are not that toxic for acute exposures, meaning a large exposure in a brief period of time. But uh, the chronic exposures of small amounts over a long period of time definitely uh, perturb um, metabolism in people and various other organisms in the environment. So the traditional PFAS compounds were called PFOS or PF octal sulfate and PFOA, which is PF octal acid. And these, um, these are what are called legacy PFAS compounds, because for example, 
PFOS, PFOS were used for uh, uh, firefighting phones since the 50s, um, especially in airports and by the military and uh, for tank farm fires. Um, Michigan uh, recently, uh, the MPART program here in Michigan, uh, which was founded in uh, 2018 by Governor Snyder, um, MPART is an interagency task group that was uh, tasked with, uh, with uh, looking for PFAS contamination in Michigan and, uh, and trying to mitigate uh, whatever pollution uh, sources are recognized. So they went out for drinking water first and then for wastewater treatment plants and then for biosolids. Uh, they, so the state investigated the majority of the drinking water supplies in Michigan, first of all. And then the second of all, they went to wastewater treatment plants that had industrial pretreatment permits because um, industries in, the, uh, in Michigan can apply uh, for a permit to release their industrial wastes to a municipal wastewater treatment plant. Um, they're only, they only need to report hazardous substances that are in those, but uh, PFAS and PFOA were not listed as hazardous substances until last year. Even though their health effects were known to industry as early as the uh, 1960s. Uh, but there was no requirement that they report um, their health data to the government. So, um, so this all became public when um, a lawyer was visiting his mother in Parkersburg, West Virginia, and noticed and, and heard that a local farmer, his uh, cattle were getting black gums and dying. Um, you can, you can, um, there's a good documentary film that can be found online uh, called uh, The Devil We Know, which is a quote um, from one of the DuPont executives. There was some um, manufacturing PFOS, PFOA at this plant in Parkersburg, West Virginia on the, on the banks of the Ohio River. So PFOS and PFOA, um, this was, uh, this was uh, discovered and publicized um, by this lawyer, Rob Bly, which lives in, he lives in Cincinnati. And uh, that resulted in finally resulted in public, an increased public awareness and a, and a consent decree that was agreed to by DuPont um, because um, you know, they had contaminated some 60,000 people in that region uh, for many decades. And so um, the results of those studies um, were published um, only a few years ago. Um, um, it was called the Committee of Eight, um, which um, makes it very hard to find. Uh, but there are online resources. Um, just Google uh, uh, Committee of Eight, and you will find their public report. Um, however, the EPA was aware of these data back in 2010. Uh, and aware of the problem. And so they initiated conversations with industry and there was an agreement made that by 2015, um, um, American com companies in America could not produce either PFOS or PFOA. However, they're still allowed to import it for um, making products. Um, the EPA has not acted on this until uh, two years ago. Uh, when, uh, when uh, President Biden appointed Michael Regan, who had formerly been the uh, director of the Department of Environmental Quality in North Carolina, which has the other uh, major, uh, which is another major um, 
contamination of the Cape Fear River in North Carolina and some 12 counties uh, surrounding this plant, this Camores plant, which was a spinoff of DuPont. Um, there were 12 local counties whose groundwater was contaminated with PFAS, uh, with a different kind of PFAS called Gen X. However, there were many uh, other compounds that were made and released in that, at that facility in Fayetteville, North Carolina. So, um, so Michael Regan uh, was aware of the problems of PFAS and what North Carolina had to do um, um, to deal with it, these multiple widespread contaminations. And so he has gotten, he has put EPA into gear and uh, our local delegation here in Michigan, Debbie Dingle, um, Ann Kildee and, uh, and uh, Fred Upton, in, uh, which are all uh, Congress persons from uh, Michigan have been uh, principal actors in, in drafting and submitting bills to Congress for the last four years about getting the uh, uh, Congress to pass legislation that will make it much, um, uh, which will fund um, the studies that are required and um, some of the remediation that's required. But you'll see that there's no way there's enough money in the world to uh, clean up the environment uh, after so, so much of these compounds have been made and released for so, such a long time. So, um, so in 2015, the EPA public, uh, established public health advisory levels, which are non-regulatory, they're just advisory levels of 70 parts per trillion each for drinking water, uh, PFOS and PFOA. However, uh, Michigan, uh, through its MPART um, activities, enacted MCLs or maximum contaminant levels for seven PFAS, including these two in, in August of 2020, and these values are about tenfold lower. So other states have acted since, and, um, and they have all set limits at various levels, but they're all in the single digit, um, in, in the single digit of parts per trillion. The part per trillion, the 70 parts per trillion is basically a drop of water in um, 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. So that's the level of contamination that's considered a, 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 a health threat for chronic exposure. Um, and so the EPA just uh, in June, on June 15th, announced new health values for PFAS, which are a thousand times lower. They're 0.2 parts per trillion. And PFOA is even lower at four parts per quadrillion. Uh, and that's based on more comprehensive emerging health data. Uh, EPA is going to go through its review process and include public comment. And they plan to set MCLs this year um, for uh, PFOS and PFOA. However, the regulatory process, you know, is very slow. And um, it will take, given that there are some 10,000 synthetic chemicals that are classified as PFAS that all share the property of persistence, um, most of whom have not really been studied for toxic effects. And uh, they are, uh, and so the, uh, the regulation of those compounds uh, will take quite some time, uh, many lifetimes, um, using the, uh, you know, given the current system uh, that's used for regulating synthetic chemicals. So these two chemicals have been manufactured and sold since 1943, and they can be measured in blood worldwide, including in Arctic um, Inuit populations. Um, 
They're, because they've migrated into the ocean, they've been absorbed by fish. The fish have been eaten by seals. Um, they've been, they're also depo uh, deposited by uh, aerosols, you know, and, and um, through, uh, and dispersed through the air as well as the water. They are principally used in consumer products. Um, so some of the major consumer products um, are, that are used for fast food wrappers. Um, the FDA actually uh, licenses and permits some 12 PFAS compounds to be used in food packaging. A major contamination in food packaging was recognized to be microwave popcorn bags. So, you know, these, uh, micro these popcorn bags that you can put in the microwave, um, those were contaminated with high levels of PFAS, uh, which were taken off and those were changed. I think I've heard that uh, the PFAS was taken out of out of those um, products several years ago, but they still exist in fast food wrappers, mostly. Um, Wendy's has pledged that they will remove PFAS in all their packaging um, by the end of last year. However, um, it's hard to tell uh, if that's really happened or not. Uh, McDonald's, for example, wants to wait until 2025. Um, other, other, uh, other, uh, businesses such as uh, Burger King um, don't recognize that it's a problem and have not pledged to do anything about it until they're forced to. So, um, um, so the other consumer products um, that contain PFAS are cosmetics like lip gloss, especially lip gloss, mascara, um, and other uh, lotions and creams, um, other uh, um, uh, other consumer products such as Glide, you know, Glide uh, um, dental floss contains PFAS. Um, you know, it's basically Teflon tape, but there is residual PFAS in that Teflon tape. The Teflon itself is a polymer, um, but it will it will degrade into a microplastic and eventually uh, become some kind of a fluorinated um, organic compound uh, that may have toxic properties as well. Uh, but there's no immediate risk to chronic exposure from, uh, from dental floss. Um, from the tape itself, but there are additives that are in there that can be leached out. Um, now, the key thing to understand about all these compounds is that they persist in body tissues, um, and they're unlike other toxic chemicals that tend to accumulate in fat. Uh, these compounds accumulate in blood and the liver, mostly. So um, foods such as uh, liver and uh, that contain blood uh, could possibly attain, uh, can possibly have much higher levels of PFAS um, than uh, muscle meat. And, uh, and the legacy compounds, PFOS and PFOA, they also have the property of bioaccumulation. That means that um, if the water has, um, say, one part per trillion uh, PFOS, the fish will accumulate up to a thousand parts per trillion of PFOS. So the concentrated, the biological concentration factors of PFOS and PFOA and other larger compounds like uh, of that same size, which have eight carbons in them, they, um, they will all bioaccumulate. And they take many years, they will take, uh, they take many years to be eliminated from the body. Um, some on the order of uh, uh, five to 10 years. 
And they're very, and these compounds, all of these compounds are also very difficult to destroy. Um, there is no industrial scale facility that demonstrates proper destruction of PFAS. Um, uh, it requires incineration temperatures of uh, greater than 1100 degrees centigrade and plus some assisted oxidation properties. There are a couple of, um, there are several technologies that are in development, but only on a laboratory scale. It's very difficult to uh, uh, to destroy these, and most of the most of the uh, so the the recommendation from environmental NGOs uh, from all of them is that um, incineration is not a proper means of disposal or treatment of PFAS contaminated materials because there just is no process that can suitably destroy them without releasing them widespread into the air and have them get deposited in the ground to contaminate groundwater. So I'm happy to take questions as I go along. Um, um, I should have said that earlier. But anyway, moving on here. Um, so the industry response to the uh, revelation, public revelation that PFOA and PFOS were toxic um, was to do what we call now regrettable substitutions. Because for example, PFOA was replaced by GenX, which is the compound that's contaminated the Cape Fear River for decades. Um, as you see, it's chemically very similar. The only difference here is that there's uh, an oxygen here. But they, uh, they still have the common PFAS properties of polyfluorinated carbons. Each of the nodes in this stick diagram is a carbon. And I don't think most, most of you are familiar with seeing chemical structures. But the O is oxygen, the H is hydrogen, F is fluorine, and then these nodes here are all carbon atoms. So when they say it's polyfluorinated octal acid, that's what you see here is eight carbons with an acid function here at the end. And everything's fluorinated. All the hydrogens have been replaced with fluorine. And similarly with PFOS, where instead of an acid here, um, a carboxylic acid function that's called, you have uh, what's called a sulfate or a sulfonic acid. Um, um, Function. So and um, and so PFBS uh, was created as an alternative to PFOS. So this compound is just as persistent. It's also toxic. Uh, the EPA recently released toxicity data for PFBS. So they're on the pathway to having a uh, having a MCL regulations in place uh, through the Clean Water Act uh, for this compound as well as GenX and PFOA and PFOS. But right now, these are the only four compounds that EPA is considering for, uh, for regulatory action at this point. So um, as I mentioned before, they've been circulating in food and water supplies for decades, and they're found in blood um, everywhere, every, every, every person that's been looked at. Um, where do they come from? Um, they start from industrial and um, AFFF, a, uh, point sources, AFFF is a firefighting foam. It's been used, um, as I mentioned, by the military and at airports. Uh, the NPARC program thought they, uh, one of their first initiatives was to collect all of it. Because um, most of it's, of course, been used in training exercises, even in municipal airports, even in small municipal airports. And, um, and so NPARC um, sent a letter to all the fire marshals in the state 
asking for all their existing stocks of uh, AFFF um, to be uh, to be declared and transported to a facility in Detroit. So uh, the state thought it would collect maybe 30,000 gallons, but they ended up collecting 60,000 gallons of AFFF. And they chose to dispose of it by shipping it to a landfill in Idaho. So where it's claimed by US ecology that it's, um, it's um, encapsulated in some form, um, like perhaps in concrete or something like that, and then put into a hazardous waste landfill, which is about a mile from the uh, Snake River, you know, upstream of uh, the Columbia River. So um, uh, hopefully they're secure, at least for uh, my lifetime. But we'll see um, what happens in the future because these are persistent. These will not degrade, not, not for millennia. So the other source is, um, and we don't have any manufacturing facilities that I know of that I've heard of for industrial sources here in Michigan. Um, but again, these um, point sources contaminate both surface and groundwaters. Now, the, uh, now in Michigan, um, because the state regulates this, not the federal government, is um, several of, of industrial sites that don't manufacture but that use PFAS are allowed uh, to send their, um, send their pre-treated supposedly uh, waste to a municipal wastewater treatment plant. WWT please, or uh, you know, that's, a, uh, that's just an acronym for wastewater treatment plant. Uh, most of them are public. There are some private ones, especially uh, around paper mills. Paper mills sometimes have their own their privately owned wastewater treatment plants. But there are some um, 70 wastewater treatment plants in Michigan that have um, industrial pretreatment permits on file with uh, uh, the State Department of Eagle. Now, um, so the MPART uh, task group tested the wastewaters from these plants and discovered um, the, uh, one of the things they discovered is the contamination coming from these uh, chrome plating facilities in Wixom. Um, uh, they're owned by a company called Tribar. There's three of them in Wixom. They had a pretreatment permit to send their waste to, uh, to the Wixom um, wastewater treatment plant. And so the PFAS contamination that got into the uh, Huron River and into our drinking water came from these um, industrial facilities that were using, um, they were using uh, these uh, PFOS and other PFAS compounds and uh, releasing them into the, uh, both into the Huron River and the River Rouge, by the way. And uh, for, uh, it's hard to tell how much time this has been going on, but probably for decades. Um, so that's how the uh, contamination in the Huron River was discovered, uh, but, all, but that was mostly discovered because the EPA, as part of its ongoing activities against PFOS and PFOA, included PFAS compounds within their um, uh, un unregulated contaminant monitoring rule, uh, which was uh, an update to the Clean Water Act where um, EPA tests, uh, EPA um, every couple of years tests for um, unregulated compounds that they think may be contaminating waterways in the United States. Um, so the CCMR3, the third study that was done, and it was initiated in 2012 and it ended 
and the data was reported in 2015. But this is when our wastewater facility became aware of the contamination in the Huron River and, and began to initiate actions to, uh, to uh, remediate it. Uh, what you know, as you know, was done with uh, the addition of some granular activated carbon beds um, that are uh, good at absorbing the PFOS and the PFOA. They're not so, they're not as effective in, um, in some of these smaller PFAS compounds. Um, now, another source of contamination is um, commercial distribution because um, uh, Scotchgard uh, was a major uh, uh, product that contained PFOS. You know, uh, we all saw those ads in the 60s. I think many of us are old enough to have seen these. Uh, where you could buy a can and spray scotch guard in all of your furniture and your drapes so that um, you know you wouldn't it would be easier to clean from a grease spill or a wine spill. So scotch guard was almost pure PFOS. Um, this was a source of contamination. Another major site of contamination in Michigan was um, uh, the former Wolverine manufacturing site where they made hush puppies. Those hush puppies being swayed were sprayed with um, Scotchgard before they were sold uh, to, to repel grease, keep them looking good. So there's been a major contamination of groundwater uh, there in Rockford and um, other, other communities there in Kent County near Grand Rapids. So you can go look at the MPART website, which is full of data if you're, if you're interested in more details about uh, what PFAS contaminations have been found in Michigan and what the state has done to remediate them and what it plans to do. So because, um, because uh, PFAS has been in uh, consumer products for so long, especially fabrics, um, this commercial distribution, all these products end up in landfills and wastewater. So um, landfill leachate is a major source of contamination in the groundwater. So, you know, the Ann Arbor um, legacy landfill was no um, you know, there's no um, orphan here. Um, it's likely that this landfill is um, leaching PFAS and PF, uh, various PFAS compounds um, into the leachate and going into our uh, wastewater treatment plant. Um, there are many others. Um, uh, the major landfill that Ann Arbor is using, Arbor Hills, has been recognized as a source of PFAS contamination by MPART. It is contaminating groundwater, it has been for decades. And so uh, that is an official investigation site for them part. Um, the Ann Arbor Legacy Waste uh, Landfill, because it's been retired a while back, has not, um, has not come up as high in the priority because it's not an active landfill, but eventually we're going to get uh, investigated. Um, now the wastewater treatment plants, as I mentioned before, they will all, all of them, whether they have industrial pretreatment permits or not, will contaminate surface waters and biosolids just because there are so many consumer products that contain these. There are no, no what you would recognize point sources as there are uh, no recognized manufacturers or major users of PFAS products here in Ann Arbor. But because, um, you know, because of the uh, consumer products, um, these end up in our water, wastewater treatment plants um, as well and get discharged to the Huron River. And so the other thing is biosolids and composts. Um, um, these are both, these are, there's widespread contamination of biosolids and composts. Um, Kathy Griswold, raise your hand. 
Kathy? Yes, I took a tour of the water treatment uh, plant, I don't know, a few years ago. And there was a discussion about how we used to sell or give our biosolids uh, to farmers. They would come with trucks or tanks and haul it away. And I'm wondering if that's still being done. And they would they would get it to to put on their uh, on their fields. Um, it's still being done. It's a common practice, and as far as I can tell, it's still being done. Oh, okay. As, as of last January. Um, actually, okay. council approved a contract with um, uh, to the provider, and I can provide that information to you uh, if you like. Um, oh, do we have to test to determine how much PFAS is in the biosoil uh, before they go out? Well, um, there are no, there is no regulation as yet, either at the federal or the state level. However, um, MPART has issued guidelines about what you should do with it if you measure PFAS. There's, you're not required to measure PFAS in your biosolids, and you're not required, um, um, and you're not required, and there are no requirements, legal requirements about what to do with them, but there are guidelines. Just like there are these health advisory levels that the EPA has issued for drinking water, there are, MPART has done that, and EPA is working on that as well. And they may have some, um, more detailed guidelines and some regulation um, later this year or early next year, because they're moving quite fast, as fast as they can. Uh, but I have information about what um, Ann Arbor does with its biosolids, who the contractor is. Um, MPART, um, the state of Michigan has been um, really good compared to many states because um, this information is all publicly available. If you go to mywaters.com, um, the state has registered for many years um, which wastewater treatment plants go to which um, agricultural fields. Have, yeah, we have um, sent their biosolids to which agricultural fields. Um, so in uh, Ann Arbor did measure its compost, its municipal compost um, three years ago. And I've mentioned this before at the Environmental Commission, but it does have compost, it does have PFAS contamination, um, other composts in both municipal and just uh, uh, yard wastes have been tested by uh, principally by a professor at Purdue University uh, named Linda Lee. So she's, she's published scientific studies uh, of, um, of PFAS levels in, in biosolids and composts. So our compost ends up you know, somewhere around the median of what's seen nationwide. Here. So, of course, when these biosolids and composts are spread on agricultural fields, plants will take up some of these PFAS compounds. They'll take up the shorter chain ones, the regrettable substitutes, and uh, um, you'll absorb them, or the cattle that are feeding on them will absorb them. Um, and uh, then they'll, they'll end up, uh, we'll all end up getting exposed through that way. And um, the, the longer chain legacy uh, PFAS tended to bind to soil more than water. So the wastewaters are not as contaminated by the older, comp uh, they're in the soil, but they don't get taken up by plants as readily and they don't get uh, discharged into the wastewater, into the groundwater as readily as these newer, smaller PFAS compounds. So Rita, you have your hand up and then Shannon. 
I wonder uh-huh. if uh, you know the source of contamination in the compost. Is there any way to determine that? Well, um, yard waste comes up much lower than food waste. So because it's been contaminating the food supply for years, there's a basal level there, but the really egregious part is the fast food wrappers, you know, like contaminated pizza boxes, you know, fast food wrappers that have cheese stuck on them, you know, people will um, compost those, you know, instead of throwing them in the trash. If they ended up in the trash, they just end up in the landfill. You get leached out eventually. Um, so they end up in the compost that way mostly. So uh, that's why um, I think the most important policy prescription right now is to prevent, uh, for, well, I'll get to this later. I'll get to this later. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess one thing that I think of though is um, there are some compostable containers um, that have some kind of lining. And I just wonder if that is a PFAS product, the liner. Yeah, there are ways of testing that. That's very hard to find any information about that. Yeah. What okay, I've thanks. done, what I have done is I've, um, you know, when the family goes out and gets takeout, I, uh, I look at the, uh, I look at the label, and I look up, uh, you know, what's I Google it, and I look at the patent literature as well, and see what's in there. And many of these lining, most of these paper products that are substitutes. Um, um, are, uh, are copolymers of, uh, for example, polyethylene, something like that, that's been combined with uh, um, some oxygenated um, other polymers, that none of which contain PFAS. So most of the ones that you can look at, I mean, the industry's known about this problem for uh, a decade now. You know, it's got, word has gotten out that, yeah, the EPA is going to do something eventually. So uh, most of the stuff I've seen in Ann Arbor here outside of the you know, large fast food companies uh, is relatively clean. You know, things you get at Whole Foods, like Amazon, for example, pledged to go PFAS free um, five years, yeah, four years ago, five years ago. So Whole Foods um, supposedly has had no PFAS in their packaging for five years, four or five years. Um, so Shannon, you have your hand up. Yeah, two questions. Um... One, just following up on what you just said, it would be great if it could, because I'm sure, you know, it's been a long time since I've had chemistry, Stephen. <laughs> I'm sure many of us in the, in the, in the Zoom room are feeling the same way. Um, and so I'm really grateful that you have this expertise because uh, I, I, I am so far from that. Um, but I think what could be really practical for our city is to have somebody like you make recommendations of compostable takeout products that could be like a safe list that a a restaurant could like look up and say, oh, these three from, you know, these three manufacturers or whatever, that they, they don't have to have a degree in chemistry to understand what the issues are so that we can just have kind of a quick and dirty like we know these are relatively safe um, and they're doing the right thing and you can order from these um, outfits and you're going to, you know, you're, you're doing the best that you can within the confines of, you know, which I'm sure there's all kinds of like nothing, nothing seems like it's completely, you know, fine, but 
um, they're certainly less bad <laughs> than, than, than others. Sure. So that would be like a fabulous thing, I think, for just our local restaurants, um, things like that to be able to, because, you know, I, I certainly put the compostable stuff in the compost bin. And I mean, boy, it would just kill me if I'm like putting PFAS stuff into the compost bin. So I would just put it in the trash, you know, but it would be great to have some sort of easy resource um, for, for places to be able to, to kind of order from. So that's one thought. The other thought is that um, sometimes I've worked alongside uh, phytoremediation, which are plants that can break down complex chains of chemicals and break them into kind of their component parts. And I'm wondering, uh, and, and there's certain plants that work with certain kinds of um, pollutants and I'm wondering if there's been any research done on that with any of the family of PFAS uh, chemicals. Um, you'd mentioned, you know, some stick in soil more, some stick in water more, but um, there's really been some exciting things that have been happening with some of that um, on some projects that we've worked on. And I'm just wondering if, if any of the um, research or industry, or there's been any kind of exploration of, um, of that field in relation to um, this issue, yeah, I'm aware of that kind of um, technology, but um, you know, the, the what do you have to what the the bottom line is that uh, the carbon fluorine bond is unnatural. Oh, it does not exist in nature. Nothing has evolved. No living creature has evolved any means of detoxifying it or changing it. Interesting. These compounds, huh. I should have been clearer about that earlier. Yeah. Huh. Huh. So, you know, you can do things like, so you can, uh, sure, because plants will take it up, you can do that. But then what do you do with the trees? What no, 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 obviously. Them? Right, right. It's more like that they will break is some of the other phytoremediation projects that we've been kind of alongside of. It breaks them down into component parts. But what I hear you saying is that this doesn't exist in that world. And so there's yeah. been nothing that's evolved to be able to yeah. make that strong of a disconnection between the fluorine and the carbon. Yeah, there's no, there's no natural means of destroying these compounds. That's why they're so persistent. I now, see. Um, the, other, the other useful uh, thing that makes phytoremediation a useful tool sometimes is that you can bioconcentrate, you mm -hmm. can concentrate um, the toxin. You know, like right. that's meant for arsenic, I know, and selenium, cadmium, mm -hmm. things like that. But uh, um, again, I mean, these are things that will, you know, those are kind of metals that will show up in the ash, but the PFAS will uh, get volatized in the smoke. Oh, interesting. And just get dispersed elsewhere, wherever it's yeah. burning. Yeah. So are you advocating then that biosolids should really just like go to a landfill? Is that... Like, is that what you think should happen? Well, that's what um, that's what several states in New England have done already. Mm -hmm. um, it's what the environmental community advocates for. Mm -hmm. It's going to present a substantial, uh, you know, uh, cost increase for the city to do so. Right, because those landfills are not cheap to dump stuff in. That's for yeah. sure. So and you know, the shame is that it is very a very good soil amendment. I know. Very good soil amendment. So, uh, you know, and the, the companies that uh, deal with this, there's so much resistance and denial because they don't, you know, they don't want to lose their business. But on the other hand, um, what are you going to do? Uh, everybody has to, if enough people 
protest um, so that these synthetic chemicals are regulated more properly. We just, there's not much you can really do about the PFAS that's, that's distributed at a basic level now. But at least we can maybe pass legislation that will prevent it from happening again. Yeah. That's what the uh, European Union is doing right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Kathy. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> yes, I hate to be this specific, but my family used to have a hog farm. And all of the manure and waste products would um, fall down and then be uh, taken away and spread on farms. And so I'm wondering, if is that a source of PFAS as well? Um, not nearly as high as the biosolids from wastewater treatment plants. Yeah, it's been, that's been looked at. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, many CAFO operations. I mean, the manure that even comes out of CAFO operations—they're not—they're uh, not significant um, sources of PFAS contamination compared to wastewater treatment plant biosolids. Oh, um, okay. But they have other problems. They have nutrient pollution problems from the phosphorus and the nitrogen. Um, oh, John, okay. you have your hand up, and then Rita. Yes. Uh, the problem with sending biosolids and compost to landfill is that it turns into methane and methane then is a greenhouse Mm -hmm. gas. So you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, I'm interested in the next part of Steve's uh, presentation about the comprehensive solutions and Shannon to your comment um, about, you know, informing um, local businesses. My hope is that we would um, take any efforts um, that were any you know, resources that we have and apply them to efforts that are hopefully um, more broad-based and have an equitable impact. Not that we're just protecting ourselves in rich little Ann Arbor, but we're protecting people also in you know other parts of the state that are probably not anywhere near as well informed about this as we are. And I'm interested in hearing from, from Steve, maybe at the very end of this, what specifically the Environmental Commission and City Council can do um, as groups and as individuals to address and promote some of these comprehensive solutions that he's talking about. So I'll I'll wait for that anxiously. Yeah, I'll move faster. Yeah, I hope I'm not putting anybody to sleep. (laughs) Rita. Well, this is a micro version of that question. Um, Is anyone working with dentists to um, suggest that they move away from glide uh, dental floss. Um, yeah, they, yeah, of course. Um, I'll, I'll get to this later. There's a couple of, you know, of course, because there are no disclosure requirements, you know, you need to test these products. So there are several environmental NGOs that have been spending money for years, including like um, the Ecology Center here in Ann Arbor and the Environmental Working Group. So I have URLs to those websites. Um, at the end of my presentations. So anybody can look at those and get the latest um, information about what products have been tested. Um, and so uh, I'll talk more about that later. So what are the comprehensive solutions here? First of all, you need to define PFAS as any chemical having at least one carbon atom fully fluorinated. So this targets the general PFAS property of persistence. This is the definition that the European Union has settled on. And, um, you know, most of these chemical companies, there's only some seven 
chemical companies that manufacture PFAS worldwide. But because they make products that they sell worldwide, you know, joining the European Union will, which is roughly a third of the world market, is in the European Union and roughly a third of it's in the United States where it used to be. So, um, you know, China is a different story entirely. But, um, but uh, we can at least, um, you know, control uh, what ends up in the environment in the, in the United States and the European Union. So, um, and then the second thing to do is to eliminate all non-essential uses of PFAS. So this turns off the whole spigot. Because because these compounds are cumulative, they're, you know, they're, because they're persistent, they accumulate. They don't, maybe no, don't concentrate in your body, but they accumulate, they accumulate. And in fact, when we, the Sierra Club, I was uh, working with a Sierra Club group that issued a report called uh, Sludge in the Garden a number of years ago about commercial uh, soil amendments that you can buy at big box stores. Uh, we tested nine uh, products that you can buy in a big box store and they all had PFAS. So you can look at the Sierra Club report, just Google uh, um, Sludge in the Garden, Sierra Club, Sludge in the Garden, and download the PDF and look at it. The thing is that um, um, they all contain PFAS, um, and they uh, and uh, and you know uh, and and we used the standard um, EPA-approved assay for this, but we also did something that I've been recommending is where you do a total organic fluorine analysis. Because the point here is that um, there are some ten thousand PFAS compounds that are registered. Some 200 to 300 of them have been made in, uh, in large quantities for a long time, but it's hard to tell. The, that data is not publicly available. It's hard to tell which ones were made and where they ended up um, in what quantities. However, um, we use this total organic fluorine test, which really measures anything that has um, a carbon fluorine bond in it. So it's basically a comprehensive test because you have so many chemicals you cannot test for all of them in any given assay. So however, our total organic fluorine assay, which is available finally here in the United States, um, can give you an upper bound for how many PFAS compounds are in a particular sample. And uh, we did that with these um, nine you know, uh, soil amendments and we came up with parts per million, not parts per thousand or parts per billion, but parts per million. Biosolids and composts tend to be in parts per billion range. Um, drinking water and waters tend to be in the parts per trillion range. Um, they can be in parts per billion ranges. Um, the biosolids can be in the parts or generally in the low parts per billion range. Uh, but if you look at total organic fluorine, it's in the parts per million range. Now, then the next question is what is this? And probably a large amount of it are, are polymers. You know, they're like Teflon that's degraded to microplastics that are in the biosolids. So those won't be absorbed in themselves, but they're already in the environment. They will break down eventually over millennia. And uh, who knows what products they'll be created. You know, just through, uh, say, uh, low-level natural processes. So, uh, Bridget, you have your hand up. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you can give examples of what essential uses of PFAS might be? Essential, um, the European Union basically defines that and everybody, there's a general agreement outside of industry is what that means. What that means is that you don't use it, you only use it for medical devices. 
and you may use it occasionally for in manufacturing processes, not where it's deliberately added to a product, but where it's a minor contaminant of things like uh, Teflon bushings and other things. I mean, these PFAS compounds are used uh, in almost any uh, a plastic molding device. So this is another problem to see with PFAS, any, any plastic um, product that's made uses is sprayed with PFAS to help the product release from the mold. So uh, this will also mean, um, it's also a generic problem with any plastic product on the market. So, uh, so you'll need to uh, you'll need to get rid of that sort of thing in manufacturing and find some other way of releasing. You know, if you want to release, if you want to do low molding and things like that, you'll need to find some other product besides PFAS. Um, and you have your hand up. Yeah, I'm just curious. What's the like? It sounds like in an industrial setting, they they act as a a lubricant, or kind of in that capacity. But in consumer products, in cosmetics, in food wrappers what is it about PFASs that make them use? Like what's their compelling feature? Well, for example, uh, mascara, I mean, it won't run because um, it won't, uh, the PFAS are resistant, repel yeah, grease and water, you know? So if, uh, if your eyes tear up or, uh, or, you know, if you get some kind of uh, oil or the oils from your skin, they will not cause the mascara to it's a similar thing with uh, lip gloss, you know? It won't get, it'll repel uh, water and grease um, if you're eating or something, you know, or lipstick. But it's in, um, you know, uh, it's in, it's in, it's hard to tell what else it's in, but these are the products that uh, uh, are, are where they're usually found. So non-essential uses means everything except a medical use where there are no substitutes. Sometimes some material is used for research purposes. Like there are some research equipment that needs to have um, plastic components that are uh, basically a, a PFAS polymer, uh, but they generally don't have anything that can reach out of them. Uh, but if you, you can look at the European Union website um, to get their draft list, uh, they published their draft list a few months ago. And so everybody can look at that. And, uh, See what they've defined as non-essential. The Nordic countries in Europe are, uh, are are more strict than the European Union as a whole. But what the EU recommendations are are things that you know every member of the EU has approved. But uh, the Nordic countries are generally stricter. Um, and so, um, and the most important thing is that we need to reform TOSCA, which is, stands for the Toxic Substances Control Act. Uh, to invoke what's called the precautionary principle, meaning that um, you should not be allowed to make anything in ton quantities until you've proven that it's safe, both for acute and chronic exposures to people and, um, you know, and uh, organisms in the environment as well. So zebrafish, for example, are a good model for PFAS um, toxicity in fish. Um, this is also part of the EU REACH program for regulating chemicals, but in the United States, you can still manufacture anything and sell it and uh, just say, just declare that it's generally regarded as safe without disclosing any data or very minimal data. So, you know, it's really an open spigot. And so uh, 
And so uh, the executive branch only has the authority that's come through TSCA, through the Toxic Substances Control Act, which was first passed in 1976, uh, but it's been diluted you know, since then. Um, the last major revision were the Frank Lagenberg amendments that were completed in 2016, which um, you know, finally allowed, uh, which finally said, well, the original TSCA did not um, permit the government to regulate any legacy chemicals. So for example, 1,4-dioxane was not regulated, um, you know, which is another source of contamination locally here. And that was not regulated. It still is not regulated because uh, yeah, it, was, um, it was grandfathered into Tosca in 1976. Uh, but part of the Frank Lautenberg amendments were that um, the EPA had to select 10 legacy chemicals to study for their toxicities. And so they, they selected 1,4-dioxane back in 2018 or so and published a report. So that's finally initiated some regulatory action on 1,4-dioxane. It's a meaningful, more meaningful uh, regulation. So, um, so this is something that uh, is best done at the federal level. Um, but again, there's very little appetite for it in Congress. So where are these PFAS point sources found? I've mentioned this before, that they're found in industrial sites, um, you know, uh, fire training sites, mostly at airports. Uh, Department of Defense is a major uh, polluter. Um, we have uh, three sites. We have actually more than three sites here in Michigan. There's the Wordsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda. Um, there are many sites in Northern Michigan, uh, mostly around Grayling and the UP. Um, there is um, another site, let's see, where is it? It's in the middle of the state here. Um, for example, the Cherry Capital Airport in Traverse City was a training site that used PFAS. So that groundwater is contaminated and it's traveling under Traverse City into uh, Traverse Bay. So um, point sources are wherever sewage sludge, which was um, relabeled by the industry as biosolids, have been applied. Um, and uh, the especially, the especially toxic ones are paper mill sledges, which are shut down basically many family-owned farms in Maine um, because of widespread contamination. Because you know Maine is a, 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 a state where there are a lot of where there's a lot of paper processing, a lot of paper mills, and then wastewater treatment sledges with IPP permits. Um, the first breach in the wall here in Michigan was. Um, a farm which had used the biosolids that came from the Wixom wastewater treatment plant that contaminated the, you know, the, the, the water in the Heron River also, um, that biosludge from that same wastewater treatment plant was applied to a farm in Heartland, Michigan, among others. And you can measure high levels of PFAS, you know, in the beef that came off that farm. And that's an unfortunate situation because that farmer um, has been a great community partner He's been a great and generous community partner. And uh, of course this came out of the blue and has put him out of business. So, um, it, and as I mentioned before, it's wherever food packaging is included in compost. So pure yard waste have far less uh, PFAS contamination than anything that has food scraps in it or food packaging. Um, this is true for all composts and all, all uh, biosolids that have been tested so far. Um, and things like car washes and commercial laundries are also point sources of PFAS contamination. 
because I think there are some products that are used in car washes, you know, after you pay for the extra service, you know, for keeping your tires shiny and stuff like that, that's probably PFAS, but it's hard to tell uh, uh, what has been used because the disclosure laws are just so weak here in the United States. So here, for example, um, here is just a screenshot from the Environmental Working Group, which is an environmental engineer that's done a lot of work on PFAS, on consumer products. I, I've given their, um, uh, their hyperlinks um, down at the last slide. But as you can see, there's a couple of states here that have been active. Just because a state is negative for PFAS doesn't mean that it isn't there. It just means that they haven't tested for it. So as you see, Colorado has tested for it because they know, because they've had it. Um, because the uh, because the military installations there, and also because PFAS compounds are used in fracking fluids. So fracking fluids contain a lot of PFAS. And so um, it was recognized, the state of Colorado recognized um, um, uh, four years ago, uh, five years ago, that they're, they have widespread PFAS contamination. So their state initiated a testing effort. These purple dots here are DOD sites because the, uh, because the DRD was required to test for PFAS contamination of groundwaters um, by the uh, federal government a few years ago. Okay, state of California, state of Alabama, because there was a 3M plant um, located in Decatur, Alabama on the Tennessee River that was a major um, manufacturer of PFAS. Um, let's see along the Ohio River here, um, and Kentucky as well, and the state of New Jersey for obvious reasons, and um, New England states have done a lot of PFAS testing in North Carolina because of the Gen X pollution in the Cape Fear River has initiated uh, state action. But most of these other states, there has been no federal action until the last two years, and there's been no, except for DRD sites, and there's been no state action whatsoever either, even though there is widespread contamination. Several NGOs like the Sierra Club have been testing drinking water in Florida, and it's very, very high in PFAS. But the state will not, uh, will not recognize it. The state will not act on it. Um, so this is just an example here. If you look at, this, um, at any of these dots, you can expand this map and uh, click on any of these dots, and this is what you'll come up with. What I did is you see this is Ann Arbor down here. And so I clicked on Wixom, the Wixom site here. And so you'll get this kind of information here on the left. This little pop-up window shows up and it will give you the details. See, it's contamination. It's got a, a location, some of the data and the sources. So this is a really good database that a lot of people are using these days. Uh, that's been funded by the Environmental Working Group. So you can go look up stuff there. Um, Another good source of information is Safer States. Safer States is a uh, environmental NGO that, uh, um, that uh, catalogs data on policies, on what uh, regulations for PFAS have been done at different state levels. Um, so you can, it's a great place to look at if you wanna see, um, um, if you wanna see representative legislation on how to ban PFAS and food packaging. There's um, Jeff Irwin and uh, um, Yusuf Ravi have introduced legislation for the past uh, four years in our state legislature that those bills have gone nowhere in our state legislature, uh, for example. But you can find all this information at the Safer States website. Um, and what are the threats here to health and budgets? 
Well, the health threats, again, are their long-term chronic exposures, and they come through food. Uh, packaging is easiest to get rid of, um, meat and fish and dairy, less so in vegetables. Um, I sort of put them in an order. So, um, you know, eating less meat, fish, and dairy will help you reduce your exposure through food. Um, there's not much you can do about that at this point. Um, this stuff has to work its way through the system. Um, it's all going to end up in the ocean anyway. Um, and packaging is something you can get rid of immediately. So in water, PFAS is difficult to remove and it persists in sediments. So the city's done a good job at getting rid of it in their drinking water. But as I mentioned, some the technology they're using isn't so good for some of these smaller molecular weight legacy PFAS. Um, air is a health threat. Um, about 5% on average of PFAS exposure comes from inhalation, both of volatile PFAS like PFDA, which is one of the smaller um, PFAS compounds that have been made in large quantities, and household dusts. Right now, a lot of drapes and carpets and you know, furniture comes with their furniture pre-treated with PFAS. You know, they're not, they're not, it's not necessary to disclose that until recently. So the carpet industry in Georgia, for example, has vowed that they will get PFAS out of their, out of carpets manufactured in that state. That um, there's plenty of legacy carpet out there. So on the budget threats, the regulation is coming and remediation is difficult. It's too expensive for most, um, most municipalities, too expensive for even the federal government. Um, you know, so it's a, it's a basic situation where a small number of people have made some money on it, but um, uh, they have offloaded the costs to everybody. And the, uh, the external costs are going to be tremendous. It's going to be, it's going to be, when I say it's um, difficult, uh, it's difficult both technically and uh, monetarily. It's going to be very hard to come up with the uh, funding required to do a true remediation. Um, uh, for everything outside of drinking water. For drinking water treatment, you have two technologies really. You have uh, granulated activated carbon, which the city is using, and then you have reverse osmosis. Um, there is a, uh, a large uh, water treatment plant for Brunswick County in North Carolina that's building a reverse osmosis treatment plant. And it's scaled to the same size as Ann Arbor's. So, um, uh, they have a budget. Um, it's under construction right now. It'll be a few years before uh, before there's enough data to make most engineers comfortable about what to expect with that investment. But they've taken this. They've taken on this challenge because of the um, Brunswick County is at the mouth of the Cape Fear River, so they they know they have highly toxic uh, Gen X compounds, and many of them. Um, that's the only way to remediate those. Uh, we can't remediate them through granular activated carbon through GAC filters. Wastewater treatment is a far bigger challenge, and it's mostly because wastewater is it starts out um, a lot um, dirtier, a lot dirtier than um, drinking water. The same with compost. The same with uh, biosolids and landfill leachates. So the regulatory laws and actions are inadequate. It's too little and too late for most sites. So the comprehensive solutions, as I've mentioned before, this is just a reiteration. Uh, we've got to get the federal government to define PFAS um, using a strict, using a strict definition that uh, the, that uh, really 
that really treats the common property of all PFAS, which is, which is its persistence in the environment and in the body, and eliminating all non-essential uses of PFAS and reforming TOSCA. So the last slide I have here are these key information sources. You know, most regulations in the United States come from recognized health risks to people. So um, the, the, the ATSDR um, branch of the CDC, they're responsible for, uh, for establishing um, health risks for chemicals. And they pass their data, they collect data and they pass on, they don't have themselves any regulatory powers, but they pass on their information to other agencies. NIEHS, um, which is centered in North Carolina, does a lot of research, um, but they don't really have any regulatory action powers. Um, you can look at, um, there's a lot of these data that's publicly available that you can find on the toxic net here at the National Library of Medicine at this URL. You can look at the EPA website. This is the root EPA website for PFAS. You can look up the FDA again, allows PFAS compounds to be used in food packaging. So you can find out um, on this website what they do and, and, um, and not so much about what they're doing about it. A good source of information is the ITRC, this Interstate Technology Regulatory Council. Um, some of the states have recognized that there's no adequate enforcement at the federal level, so they're all sharing data and recommendations on this website. Um, I saw you, I saw, I gave you a slide from Safer States. This is where you can find this information on PFAS regulation um, in different state at the state level. Um, then there's some um, I attended a PFAS conference in North Carolina on June 15th to 17th, and you will find um, you will find uh, um, some information on this website, which is the latest publicly um, site where a special meeting dedicated to PFAS toxicity and regulation and uh, um, this is, was discussed. And I can provide a PDF of the uh, of the agenda for anybody who asks me. Uh, the PDF hasn't been posted on the website yet. Um, this is the MPARTS website that will tell you what the PFAS response has been in Michigan. Um, part of that website is that they, show you, they give you a map of PFAS sites in Michigan and investigation sites. So you can look into that. And the um, environmental NGOs that are providing the best information here is the Environmental Working Group at this uh, URL. The Silent Spring Institute, which is located uh, in Newton, Massachusetts, has done a lot of good work. Um, um, the Sierra Club here has done a sludge in the garden report that can be found at this uh, URL. And then there's this, this app, which you can find. There are um, some apps in progress where you can, um, you can load, download it onto your phone and you can look up different food and cosmetics and household products. So uh, speaking to uh, the general question was addressed now. Um, but um, again, you need, you can, um, this information, there's no central clearinghouse for this, uh, for this information. But I'll do my best to try to assemble it um, into, a, into a form that uh, where you can see it as it's updated. Because this, there's a lot of work moving here. A lot of work has started uh, moving quickly. So um, information can get, uh, can expire pretty quickly. We're becoming complete. Um, John, your hand is up. Uh, it seems to me, and you've mentioned this, um, that really everything that we do are band-aid solutions unless we can 
um, shepherd um, Tosca, not um, excuse me, reach like legislation in, in the US so that um, new chemicals are only approved after they've been shown to not be harmful. Um, do, do we as individuals have any possible influence um, in uh, pushing that kind of legislation, advancing it, um, promoting it with our, our elected officials or is that just an unrealistic lift? Well, our local no. Well, our local officials are very aware of it, very active in trying to push legislation through Congress. Debbie Dingell is a leader. So is Dan Kildee, and so is uh, Fred Upton in the western part of the state. It's a bipartisan issue, but um, you know, so it tends to get some support from Republicans. But uh, you know, the major pushback is by the uh, American Chemistry Council, which is the trade group for the chemical industry and, it, uh, and also the chambers of commerce. You know? So what can we do or what do you recommend we do? Um, you need to contact your elected officials. Okay. Um, ours are already, ours here in Ann Arbor are already well aware of this problem and they're very active. So I would ask them, yeah. I would ask them, you know, for example, this uh, DFOS bill um, has been in, that uh, Yusuf Ravi and Jeff Rowan introduced four years ago hasn't gone anywhere is the Republican leadership and the current legislature will not move it into, will not move it out of committee. They will not even allow a public discussion about it. So, you know, there needs to be a public discussion. You know, I think, personally, I think, uh, you know, because states have not acted and the EPA has limited authority, um, that we, I think, uh, testing, if we can, fund testing, if we can get people nationwide to test their water supplies for PFAS, they can do it at $80 a pop. There's a company that will do it for 80 bucks. And, uh, um, and that will at least um, make public, raise public awareness. And, uh, you know, I think there's, um, you know, it's one thing to show up as a constituent and say, um, I'm, I'm concerned about PFAS in my drinking water. And you know, it's one thing to just show up and say that, and it's another thing to show up with a piece of paper to say my drinking water is contaminated. It's, and how long has it been contaminated? And I want to know why, and I want to know what you're going to do about it. So I think that's the bottom line because the authority has to come through Congress. You know, the maybe the executive branch does what it can, but when there's a leadership change in the executive branch, you can swing from hot to cold overnight. Um, so Kathy, you have your hand up. Yes, I've attended two community hearings regarding PFAS. In fact, Stephen, were you at the one at Washtenaw Community College? Yeah, that um, Huron River Watershed Council sponsored. Yes. yes. Yeah, I was there. I think it was in November of 2020 or 2019. Probably 2019 before COVID. So there is yeah. a lot of community interest. Um, yeah. Willow Run has a you know a super super fun site because of PFAS, mm-hmm. uh, and General Motors seems to be quite proactive. Uh, and the last thing I want to say is, if you have city water, the city is already testing it for PFAS on a regular basis and reporting it monthly. Yeah, yeah, the city is doing fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, we spent some, uh, like $1.4 million 
of our own money. So that's another, that brings up another point that uh, the polluter pay laws have totally been um, made ineffectual. So I think it's important that the taxpayer not pay for this, but the, uh, you know, the, uh, the industry that's made these compounds should pay for it. Everybody else is relatively innocent, but then the seven companies that manufactured this, they need to pay the bill for everybody because everybody else is just going to pass through. Um, and your hand is up. Yeah, I know there's a lot of focus on PFAS and drinking water, but I am kind of curious about um, every time construction happens on a piece of property, does it raise the level of like uh, PFAS that might be in the air? Um, and is it something that should be like, like for instance, um, a few, uh, a couple of years ago at one of the Ann Arbor City Parks um, at Leslie Science and Nature Center, we started a, an effort to build a playground. And in the course of that, the, we did some testing of the um, soil where they were going to place the playground and discovered that there were a lot of uh, industrial contaminants. And so a remediation effort had to take place. And so I'm curious, like, is PFAS something that an environmental company would test for um, prior to construction? And is there anything one can do about it? Um, would ask for prior to construction, yeah. No, there is no requirement there. In fact, um, in fact, I'm working with a group which we're trying to privately fund uh, some air monitors around um, some of these Wolverine toxic sites near Grand Rapids. Um, uh, the uh, MPART program in the state has been doing some work on air, you know, on um, air, uh, um, you know, uh, on air contamination from PFAS and air distribution uh, of PFAS. But uh, as far as I know, there is no legal requirement to do it, and this legal is not requiring um, people to do it. You know, the basic fact is that um, almost none of these are declared as hazardous substances. So until they're declared hazardous substances, uh, the regulatory agencies are stymied. You know, so Anne, yeah, your hand is still up. Yeah, just is it, is it is the issue that um, we just don't have the studies that would convince authorities that they are hazardous substances? Is there still work to be done in showing the link between PFAS and specific um, health problems? Well, you know, I've been looking, I look at the uh, peer-reviewed scientific literature. And so that's, that's inhibited by the amount of funding that's allocated to those kind of studies. But that's where this information first shows up. Then it takes generally like a couple of years for it to migrate into the uh, into the press. You know, there are several local reporters that are very good on this topic now, but it takes a couple of years for the for the media, the general media, to take up um, uh, these topics. And then it takes a couple of years after that for the regulatory agencies to take it up. And then it takes um, another almost a decade for the uh, EPA to deal with it because they have to go through their, their whole rulemaking process. So there's a significant delay. You know, you see just for P PFOS and PFOA, it's taken 12 years since the EPA, you know, talked to the manufacturers. 
and uh, the contamination in the higher river was recognized. You know, so uh, it could be a good, um, it, it takes a long time. It takes a long time for the rulemaking uh, to happen. Uh, Shannon. Um, I'm just curious, and this is really piggybacks on Anne's comment. And I'm going to hazard a guess here, and I'm just curious what you think about it. Just because I work with construction sites all the time, it seems to me that it would be more with like a brownfield kind of situation that you would really think about having higher levels of PFAS in the soil. And that I know Leslie Science Center had a very uh, enthusiastic chemist that used to live there that dumped stuff all over the place. And so that doesn't seem like a very typical example to me of like construction and and you know digging around and I'm just wondering Stephen if you have an opinion about something like that I mean I I can just tell you there's no way with every construction project that you would you, you have to do a phase one or phase two environmental report which would alert you to the fact that there was some sort of chemical something happening there that would then make the soil more at risk but that generally if, if it you if you kind of pass through those that it seems like it would be less likely that with any construction project, you could be volatilizing this into the air in a significant way. Is that seem reasonable to you or not really? Yeah, that's reasonable. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, you know, I, I was just outlining the general procedure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not likely unless the chemicals have been disposed in a concentrated form. Right. But you know how common it is not to know that. That's right. When you're a buyer of a property and there's no disclosure requirements and uh and you know and there's also um you know because there's a list of what you need to test for correct but right if a chemical, and, but if a chemical is not listed as a hazardous substance that's right no requirement to test for it that's right right and so it wouldn't show up on a phase two report um because it's not one of the ones that they would actively i mean yeah Okay. Yeah. So see, here's an example of, of chemicals that were made for 70 years, over 70 years, distributed widely in large quantities, and for which they're still not listed as hazardous substances. Yeah. Um, I have one more question, and I forgive me if I kind of missed this in the in the way that you were presenting things at the end. It seems like what you're saying is that our compost could be dangerous. We're spending all kinds of energy trying to figure out how to get more people to compost, how to get restaurants to compost. Like it just, what is your sense of that? Because like, that's a big shift of what many people are working on to try to make happen. And I'm just wondering what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, the unfortunate thing is that it's been circulating for decades. It's everywhere. So, um, the costs of fixing it are high. Um, the current levels are probably, it could be uh, an issue for the most vulnerable population, you know, which tend to be kids, young kids under the age of five, you know, from conception till the age of five. Um, it's hard to tell because there is no hard health data. Um, and they're very hard to avoid. I mean, they're still, these compounds are still in consumer products. So what I tell people is, you know, what you can do, what we can do is just stop putting fast food wrappers into our compost. The food is another thing. I mean, the food itself, 
is probably okay. Uh, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and, you know, you really, to get a good compost or a good soil amendment, you need the nitrogen. Right. Um, but, but we can at least get rid of the food packaging. So, so that's kind of the big message, really, it seems to me, is like the, the, the fast food wrappers, some of the food packaging that may contain these, not so much the food itself. In, in, I mean, I, there's probably some level, like you're saying, of background in, in many things in terms of our food. Um, but you're advocating more for the food uh, food container and food wrapper piece of it rather than compost just made with food. Am, am I right about that? Or that's that's correct. You know, okay, because it's going to be impossible to get rid of. It's going to be impossible to uh, you know to reduce it until we can ensure that people have to test for it. Yeah, and not have it intentionally. Okay, there's just are no loss to that. Okay, thank you. So, John. 15 seconds. Could you make a presentation in a future meeting contrasting U.S. Tosca versus European reach? Um, because I think there's probably very, very few people that understand the difference. And unless we implement something like reach in the U.S., we're constantly going to be playing catch up. Um, you know, there's just there's just going to be all these new um, chemical compounds that are introduced. And um, there's going to be no requirement on chemical companies to um, indicate what their toxicity is or what their other environmental impacts are or human impacts. And we're constantly being, being, uh, having to catch up. Whereas in Europe, you know, by passing REACH legislation, they haven't been set back into the dark ages. Um, they're still able to have uh, a thriving economy. And I think it would be really important for people here to understand the difference between the two two regulatory approaches. Yeah, absolutely. No, it doesn't I'll have to be long. Point. I just you know, fifteen minutes, ten minutes, just so people understand the difference. Yeah, I know I've taken up uh, over an hour here, so uh, okay, we'll do. Rita, you have your hand up, and then uh, we should move on. Um, it seems to me um, relating this to. Um, Shannon's question or comment uh, that this might be an opportunity to um, do some communication about the solid waste and inform people to avoid trying to compost wrappers of any kind. Right? Well, it'll end up in the trash and then it'll end up leaching out of the landfill eventually. So, so you know, you're the if you question are, is, you're where do you want to go? Um, yeah. It feels like we should to... have some message for the public um, in some way. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm struggling with that myself. There, there are no good solutions anymore. Okay. Well, uh, why don't we move on? I think. Uh, I think I'm happy to answer anybody's question if they uh, want to email me anything. Or... Meanwhile, um, we have these information sources folks can look at. So I'm going to stop sharing the screen here. And uh, let's move on to the next uh, item on the agenda then. Uh, there's no unfinished business. We have no new business. Uh, so we have reports from committees, other commissions, council, and chair. Let's start with uh, planning. All righty. Um... 
two things. One is uh, we just got a presentation on a proposal called The Village, um, which is over off of, is basically kind of tucked into a corner of Pontiac Trail and Duvarn. Is If you think of the, the corner being out, it sort of uh, folds its way through there. 561 units, um, 65 acres, and um, it's still in the kind of rezoning phase. Um, but it's probably, my guess is, the last big piece of land that Ann Arbor has um, in terms of uh, development of this size. Um, it also, it, it's a site that has been, uh, it was a dump site, parts of it for a lot of years. It's not pristine by any stretch of the imagination in terms of its environmental history. Um, there are some nice trees on it for sure. Um, uh, there were a lot of questions that we had um, and uh, it's it's going to be coming back for rezoning. When there's rezoning involved, we have a little bit more power to ask. Um, and so um, I think every commissioner and all their comments really tried to hit home the idea of electrification um, with this project. Um, and uh, they are going to come back with some, they did had done some homework, but um, are going to do some more homework with that. Mm -hmm. So uh, this feels like an opportunity um, with this many homes, this much energy being locked into that for so long. Um, I think because of the rezoning, we're going to see what we can do as planning commission, which ordinarily that is not what we have any control over. We can, we can ask nicely, <laughs> try not to completely alienate them. Um, but uh, we can't, there's no teeth, but with the rezoning, we have a little bit, again, sort of a sideways power coming in there to be able to do that. So that's one to watch um, as it relates to our A20 plans. Um, and then we also had a, a couple of, we had a, a, a public um, hearing input session on the newest um, transit corridor development uh, area, which is going to be on stadium. That's what we're looking at right now. We got a lot of public comment. We have continued to get public comment through emails. Um, it's, it's people are kind of all over the place. There's some people that really don't want it. There's some people that love it. Um, it's been all over. I would just say with this that um, for me, this is one of the few areas where we can map more closely to the A20 plan because of where this is located. The whole idea of this kind of zoning is to be able to get housing on our transit corridors to make it easier for people to take transit instead of their car. And that we have absolute jurisdiction over his planning commission. So it's nice to actually work on something where we feel like, okay, we actually can do something about this. So um, it's, it's because it's really like a planning move to be able to do this, uh, the zoning in this area in this way. So um, it's still in rough form in some ways. I have a feeling there's going to be more discussion around what it looks like. It may be a little bit different flavor than what I already got passed out at, at State and Eisenhower. But um, it's definitely on the agenda, and um, we're hearing a lot about it. And um, for me, it's really important um, because it allows people to, number one, 
not have to live in Jackson or South Lyon or somewhere else and actually be able to live in Ann Arbor. And so that you're getting rid of, you know, those emissions um, that are traveling into town and then that you could lead a more car fleet car or less car oriented lifestyle by living in one of these um, in one of these developments in these corridors. So those are the two big things for me with that. And um, we're going to kind of keep marching through in terms of some of the other areas as well, but uh, because of Washtenaw and Plymouth on the agenda as well, but stadium is where we are right now. So I think that's, that's the, those are the big things or, cause I think it's been two months because I had to chair the last commission. So I couldn't, I couldn't attend. You are muted, Stephen. I am. My dog was, the neighbor's dog is barking. So uh, John, you have your hand up and then Rita. Uh, Shannon, is there any consideration with this rezoning to uh, a transit corridor of including any sustainability requirements? For example, yeah, um, certain emissions per square foot targets or any other kinds of things along those lines, um, all electric, whatever the case may be. We really don't, at least what I've been told, um, is that we really don't have the power to do that. Like as a planning commission, that we can't legislate people being all electric. And, and that's why I was bringing it up with the other project is that we kind of have some, you know, foothold because they're asking for something extra. Um, and even then we can't legislate it really. It's just kind of putting the pressure on them. Right. And so we, as far as, as far as the commission knows at this point, I know we had a speaker that came and said, I'm not so sure about this, but from what we understand right now, uh, we don't have the power to make them do that. So we're doing what we can, which is locating the development in a transit corridor. Um, but otherwise, I've been told that that we don't have the power to do that. So I think there's also some concern about like, the, we're also trying, it's, it's just, it's such a balancing act, right? In terms of kind of cost and, um, and environmental considerations and everything too. And I think we're trying to, it's not true affordable housing, um, but we're trying to make it, it's like land costs are less there, things like that. It's not like living downtown uh, with some of the high rises downtown. Um, so um, again, it's mostly about the, that we just really don't have the jurisdiction to do that. Um, but I think there's also some portion of it, which is let's try to make these something that people can build, um, and not have it be crazy expensive and that people could live there and, um, and be able to use transit from there. I'll address that topic a little bit later when I give an update on energy commission. So great. Go ahead, Rita. Shannon, this isn't, um, necessarily an environmental commission item, but maybe um, in some of the developments that we've had, there've been mixed use plans that haven't played out, um, meaning that the retail and, and whatever hasn't happened that was um, designed. Mm -hmm. um, is there any way to allow that? Because I'm worried about the businesses in those areas that are established and are really the reason for having the transit corridor, right? Like sure. stadium hardware. It's like, we want to make sure that lives and is available to the people that are in the potential so are, to be living there. 
Let me make sure if I'm understanding your question. Are you saying, is there a threat to other businesses because we would have a retail, com- we're asking for mixed use and there would be a commercial level to it on the first floor? Is that what you're? I'm, I'm concerned that the history that I see in some places is that, that the retail hasn't played out. You know, I think it's because the square footage is too expensive for a business to stay in, particularly a smaller local business that the expense as exemplified by the George that's now going to be housing, not, not the proposed retail that the community really wanted that immediate community. Yeah. So how does that play out? It's really hard because so much of that is market driven and we have no control over that. And so like, you know, we've all seen these empty storefronts, even downtown, like the one, you know, on here on the quarter and division right. in Huron was empty for like four years or so. Right. Before. So right. you can say like, we want retail on the first floor, but frankly, right now it's pretty tough in the retail world, <laughs> given Amazon and, you know, all these other right. forces. Right. I, it is something that we've talked about, but I don't know that it's, um, totally there yet. I, I should check it to kind of see as to what does it mean if it's just all residential, which is, I think, it, it's like a, a very real pers- possibility. I think that like we want it to have that vibrant mix at the first level and who wants to live like at the first level on stadium looking at, you know, all those kinds of things. But um, uh, I know that there's been some talk about that, but I, I, I have to confess, I don't feel like I know the minutia of what we really allow and not. If like if you could do pure residential if you wanted to, um, or whether it's it's set on mixed use. Um, it's a tough thing. Like we've heard from developers, like, you know, I'd like it to be mixed use, but I just don't have any confidence in in being able to fill it, which is hard. So anyway, and, I know and, there's a, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's just that and then people will need to travel to get those goods and services, right? That's right. <laughs> That's why we wanted them there in the first place. So if we That's lose right. next, I don't know what to do. But you got to make, you got it like, they have to be viable too, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's really, it's really hard. And I think the other tricky thing is that we're, we're managing the parking with it too, and keeping it on the low end. And in the kind of interim, while we're shifting over to fewer cars and things like that, is there enough parking for a current business to move in there? Are they going to balk at that and say, that's not enough for me? I mean, those are just all really tough questions, I think, around sort of where we are, where we want to be, and kind of how you get there. It's not straightforward <laughs> in my mind at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's move on to energy. So, uh Our last meeting was devoted to three topics. Um, One was a presentation by Missy Stoltz uh, on A20 at two. And I encourage you to go into Legistar and look at her presentation. It's mostly focused on actions um, and not so much on outcomes. And when I talk about outcomes, I'm talking about greenhouse gas emissions. Um, The last inventory that was done is for 2020, and we all know 2020 because of the pandemic was an anomaly. And so uh, we're to some degree driving while looking in the rearview mirror. Um, We are still waiting for some data from, or OSI is waiting for data from DTE to be able to update the inventory to reflect 2021. Um, And it's expected that um, that'll be available sometime 
in August or September. So um, hopefully both of our commissions will get a report on that, or at least you'll be able to access it from the Energy Commission site. Um, we got an update on the climate millage, and I believe also a, a presentation was given to the Environmental Commission on that. Um, and or if not, that, that certainly could be done. Um, and then the other thing is we um, passed a resolution um, regarding the development that Shannon talked about, encouraging the Planning Commission and City Council to work with a development uh, developer to make that an all electric um, development. So I've read the statute um, and in the case of a request like like this, where someone's requesting rezoning, you, Shannon's absolutely right. You cannot make um, in a case like this rezoning contingent on, for example, a sustainability um, requirement or something like that. Um, so that's why um, we, we ask that just be encouraged um, and um, we don't really have a, a real strong lever in this case. Um, we don't have an August meeting, but in September, um, just in correspondence in the last couple of days, I can tell you that um, we plan on taking on the topic of affordability of housing versus sustainability of housing. Um, Brett has agreed to present um, at our meeting, and we're talking about the possibility, or at least um, Miss is going to explore it with maybe you, Shannon, and Brett about possibly combining a portion of our meetings to talk about this. Uh, I've arranged for an architect and developer out of uh, headquartered in Philadelphia that has done a lot of work, um, mostly in that area in New England, but in other parts of the country, to make a presentation. They've done a number of projects um, that are um, Passive House certified, um, several of which are also net zero. Um, and those um, on average, actually, there's a study done by the state of Pennsylvania of 268 projects um, that went through a state agency um, comparing traditional construction to passive house construction. And passive house construction, which, by the way, is a very, very tight um, envelope, is essentially high insulation, very well sealed, doesn't necessarily have to be net zero, meaning all electric, but could be. Um, passive house projects came in, on average, 1% or 2% below conventional construction. So he's going to come in and talk about uh, their experience there and the design approach and uh, working with uh, the team to to achieve those kinds of results, but we feel that um, other than the paradigm and the experience here in the Midwest, and there certainly is a lack of experience, but other than than that paradigm, um, that there is absolutely the possibility of having affordable, sustainable housing in in Ann Arbor. And the other thing to remember, affordability is not just what I pay for my mortgage or for my rent, um, as Shannon pointed out before, it's also transportation costs, but it's also my utility costs. So if my utility costs um, are held way, way down and I can build a very uh, sustainable structure for the same cost, then you're winning on, on both ends of the equation. So our hope is, is that um, we can uh, stage a, a meeting where we can get um, not only commissioners attending, but also maybe also people from um, the community, housing commission, even maybe the townships Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti has two big projects that I think they just um, 
approved that are going to be natural gas fired appliances. Uh, and um, uh, some of you may know Ken Garber. He's a regular speaker at both planning and energy commission meetings and at city council. He did calculations that showed, I think in the last two years, the city has approved uh, projects that are going to be gas um, fired, so to speak, for heating and hot water. And the emissions that are going to be emitted because of that are going to completely offset all of the solar from the solarized project, uh, all of the solar that's going on city um, buildings, and about one third of the solar that's going to be going up on the landfill. So these large projects that where natural gas is going in for heating air, for cooking, for heating water are really setting us back on A20. And Shannon is right, the building and energy codes really restrict us. Um, I don't know about a case like creating a transit corridor if there's anything we can do, but that's something we definitely need to look in, uh, look into because if we do transit corridors, South State, Plymouth, um, Stadium, Washtenaw, and we have no control over whether or not those are gonna be all electric or not, then we're gonna really, we'll get limited benefit, put it that way. Because if, if they're not developed here, they're probably gonna be done somewhere else and those could be gas fired as well. So it's not like um, there's, there's no benefit, but we're not certainly not getting the full benefit of what we'd like to achieve. So um, that's an update from the Energy Commission. And um, I, I mentioned this before the meeting was called to order. Um, um, Edie Juno is moving to Washington, D.C. Um, she had been our liaison, and um, I was the only person that raised their hand um, or was nominated to be the liaison, so you have me back. Um, I was the liaison for, I think, almost three years um, in a couple of years ago, so glad to be back with all of you. Yeah. You have to Welcome put up my questions and comments. Okay. Thanks, Steve. So, um, all right, so let's move on to... Parks, Parks Advisory Council. Hey, we had a meeting last week. Uh, we had a presentation um, from the Council of the Commons uh, about their progress towards the, uh, the park in the center of the city. Um, they're at the, they're in the process of fundraising in order to uh, be able to do an RFP, um, you know, to, to figure out what we're gonna actually do, you know, how we're gonna actually develop that, that park space. Um, I think they're about halfway through. They're trying to can't remember what the sum of money was that they're trying to raise, but it was um, around maybe two hundred thousand dollars. I think in that in that um, ballpark. And then we had a, a presentation uh, once again, um, and sort of a follow up presentation on um, the new uh, fire station that's going to be built, or the, the replacement fire station that's going to be built. Um, adjacent to Scheffler Park and its impact on the park. So um, just some follow-up on our, our own Rita Mitchell asked some very good questions about that. So um, I think that's, that's about it. It was a, a short meeting. Okay. Well, thanks, Anne. <clears throat> so let's move on to uh, committees, um, pollinators. Okay, I was going to share briefly, I'm, I'm aware of the time, so I'm gonna share um, my screen. We did a survey of our registered NOMO May participants, and I wanted to share what we found with you all. 
um, how Mo No Mo May 2022 went. We had 438 people register. Uh, we know that there were more than 438 people that participated, but that's the number that registered. And this is a map of those people that were willing to share their address. So this doesn't include all 438, but um, it's around a 200 something that is represented in this map. And we asked these folks to share about how much area they left unmowed. And on average, folks left about 9,338 square feet in their private space unmowed, either for part or all of May. And we estimated based on, you know, having at least 438 registered, registered participants that we had about 94 acres, very likely more than that, um, but approximately 94 acres at least unmowed in all of um, Ann Arbor. And then we asked participants, essentially, you know, how did you feel? What did, you know, what was your experience like? Did you have any issues, et cetera? And we had 86 people out of those 438 respond to our survey. So that's about a 29% response rate. I'm sorry, out of the 230-ish that shared their emails. Um, so overall, people had a positive experience, it, at least those that responded in the survey. They thought it was an easy way for them to be part of this uh, support of local biodiversity and pollinators. Um, they said things like they felt good about it, they connected with nature, and they really enjoyed being part of this larger community effort. Lots of people requested signage. So this is something we're thinking about for next year. We did have a, a sign available for them to print on the city website, but um, people were looking for something more substantial that um, we're thinking about as we think about next year. And then some people did express concerns about the city not participating. And I know that um, this is a conversation that we've had with parks and um, we have a good response that we share with these folks. Uh, we did have a uh, webinar as well where we invited parks to kind of explain what their thinking was and, and um, where to go with that. But that was still something that folks expressed in the survey as well. Uh, we had 88% say that they would like to participate next year with 11% saying that they might. So a very large number of our respondents want to be part of this next year. And 96% of folks said they wanna learn more about removing some lawn and perhaps incorporating native plants into their landscape. So, um, so we are gonna continue the communication and the education with these folks, particularly those that have said that they want to learn more. Hey Bridget, were we able to actually go back to those people and provide them with something? We haven't yet, but we, we just got these results. Uh, Rita, did we end the survey on Sunday? I think Sunday. So we will, we do plan to do that. Um, and then we just asked them what sort of issues they might've had and about 46% of folks said they did have a little bit of a hard time mowing at the end because the grass was pretty long. So we, we did try to um, foresee this and gave some advice as to how they should think about mowing. And um, we'll keep that in mind for next year as well. Uh, and then there were some people that were worried about ticks. About a third of our respondents were worried about ticks. And that's something that we had heard outside of the survey as well. So we've got some information. We did some research. Um, Doug Tallamy has some good um, 
information out right now in response to this because other folks outside of Ann Arbor are talking about it. So we will share that in addition to our respondents. And then there were a smaller number of people. I think I was personally surprised at this number. I thought it would be higher, but about 12% of people said they were worried about their neighbors complaining or that their neighbors did complain. Um, so I mean, we think that the signage would also be helpful um, for this point as well. Um, two thirds of our respondents waited the whole month to mow. Um, and then about 28% waited three weeks. Um, so most people waiting at least three weeks left their their lawn unmowed. And 56%, this is a, you know, we don't have some um, real empirical evidence as to whether or not we saw more pollinators, but we did ask folks what they observed. And about 56% said that they did see more pollinators and 30% said they saw about the same. And I just want to sort of round out by saying we will reach out to these folks again. We're going to continue our education and outreach. And we're thinking about ways that we can continue having this conversation with folks so that we can increase local biodiversity and pollinators. And we are thinking about No Mo May 23 and the best way to, to approach that. Mm -hmm. Thank, Thank you, Bridget. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that looks very successful. That's a first pass. Yeah. So um, let's see. Um, how about um, zero waste, John? Sure. Yeah. A couple of quick updates. Uh, we're continuing on many fronts with the project. Uh, the map has become a very popular tool that we're continuing to refine. Uh, actually, had an interesting stat shared by city staff that it is the most popular map on the city website, even more popular than the marijuana map. So we'll take that as a measure of success. Um, we've got a video that will be released soon, just kind of introducing the topic of the circular economy. And we've got two more uh, in, the, in, in the works. Uh, we're meeting with the A20 collaborators on August 16th. That'll be a large group, probably about 60 folks to kind of talk through what we're doing and get their feedback on it. And we're continuing with our pilot project with Recycle Ann Arbor, the Ann Arbor Thrift Shop, and the Ann Arbor Library to kind of better understand their operations and how their work aligns with the circular economy. Uh, we're gearing up with our project with the state through the uh, I2P3, the Intergovernmental Initiatives for Public-Private Partnerships. There'll be a big showcase sometime in early October where we'll be presenting there about our work and our kind of wrap up project as part of that collaboration will be uh, having them work with us to, this is kind of more of a consulting opportunity, uh, having them work with us to develop a kind of marketing strategy where we can really promote the circular economy and all the resources we've put together. Um, I'm thinking of something similar to the stormwater management uh, campaign that's been going on for a while that caught my attention at least, uh, so something like that. And then I uh, just wanted to put it out there to the commission, It'd be great if uh, we could present and talk a little bit more about our work at maybe a fall meeting, maybe September or October. Uh, we've got a group of C students who would like to present about what they're doing as a part of this initiative too. So a nice opportunity for them to kind of get before the commission and go a little bit deeper into the work that we're doing. So I think that's it.
Hey, thanks, John. Let's see. Uh, natural features isn't here. Um, Bridget, you have your hand up. I was just going to say I might be part of the reason your map is so popular. I, I really like that map, and I I teach a unit on the circular economy, and so I. I have my students go in and, and look at it too. So it's Improvements coming soon. We're gonna collapse the number of categories so it's a little bit easier. And then each category will have a different icon. So right now it's just different color circle dots, mm -hmm. but it'll be a little bit more user friendly. And each uh, business will be then linked to Google Maps where people can do public transit planning of how to get from location to location um, using public transit. Cool, I love it. Thanks. Thanks, John. So uh, let's see, uh, Council. Kathy. Um, the U of M workforce housing proposal uh, is scheduled to go before the county for a vote in September. I've been talking to union leaders. Uh, another opportunity is that if we could get funding from uh, from the state, we might be able to go all electric as well as solar panels. And I've spoken to Senator Jeff Irwin, and he's interested in looking for funding so that we can be more sustainable than a normal building would be. So uh, that's going well. Uh, chapter 40, which this uh, commission passed, is being evaluated by the legal department right now. I had a meeting with the city attorney and assistant city attorney. Uh, Kevin McDonald, I'm told, had a meeting with uh, 10 other staff members. So they're taking this very seriously. However, it's, it's taking a while. And what I was told is that the main focus of staff was on safety, but we know that we also need to focus on um, how we can educate the public so it's not just a lawn. And I, I think that the pollinator group showed that there is interest in doing that. People wanna know how they can replace their lawns with, with pollinator plantings that are going to still be safe. Um, there is also going to be a meeting that uh, Missy Stoltz is chairing between A20 and Vision Zero looking at conflict points and how we could possibly optimize the application of the two. Uh, the last thing is more personal. I was the first person uh, on the scene of a relatively serious car crash at the corner of Ann and Division Tuesday night. I got there before, the, uh, before EMS and the police and a contributing factor to that crash was a large bush on the southwest corner of that intersection. And I'm, I'm not gonna get upset tonight, but it is half a block from City Hall and it's inexcusable that we have um, sight distance issues that close to City Hall. And so we're looking at how can we be more proactive because we can't rely on the public to report all those sight distance problems, just like we wouldn't wait for the public to say, hey, my water smells, can you check it for toxic chemicals? I mean, we, we do have to be proactive. So um, I guess that's it. 
I can't think of anything else that the Environmental Commission has referred to council, but uh, given the time, if anyone's interested in more details, just give me a call or send me an email. So okay. thanks. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Uh, John, you're up your hand up. Yeah, real quick for Kathy and maybe Shannon's interest and the general, everybody else too. Um, the workforce housing nonprofit that I'm affiliated with met for almost an hour and a half with U of M, U of M CFO Jeff Chattis yesterday. And um, we made a pitch um, that the U of M could do a lot in terms of workforce housing on its properties, um, presented specific sites, talk more in general, but um, it was very clear to us that um, Chattis is most focused on housing along Plymouth Road. Um, and um, uh, I, I knew that um, transit or transit oriented um, development or a transit corridor was potentially in discussion for for um, that area. And it, it sounds like um, that would be they'd be willing to um, do that in concert with the city or at least in consultation with and, and um, somehow compatible with that. Um, we talked about other sites um, on Fuller and then around the hospital. They less seem less interested in that. Um, but um, that that's something. And by the way, um, Chattis indicated that he had met with um, Administrator Dehoney and they had discussed the, the housing, uh, but he didn't go into any details of what was in that. Um, preliminary discussion. So um, that's something that at some point, it seems to me the city is going to want to talk with U of M. Um, both are doing comprehensive um, master planning. Um, U of M calls it campus planning, but um, Plymouth Road seems to be a real opportunity. Thanks. Um, John, was it uh, workforce housing as well as student housing along Plymouth Road? They were not committal. They asked a bunch of questions about how they could do that, um, how they said that the university would definitely never sell the property. That would not um, ever be something they would consider, um, but they would consider it sounds like a lease and doing mixed income, mixed um, type of people and not just all U of M students or not just all potentially U of M employees. Um, they seemed open at least to that. Oh, okay. That's and great we, news. And we pointed and to them to talk to some developers that have experience in that type of work. Oh, okay. And and that would mean if they maintained ownership of the land that it would not go through the city for zoning or the city building department, uh, which would probably speed up the process. Correct. But I hate to say that, but reality. That, <laughs> that there would be a 99-year lease and that you know, if the university wanted to, it could get income from that. Um, if they didn't want income, then that would increase the affordability, obviously, of, of those units. So, I mean, we talked about both of those options. You know, maybe we can talk about those offline. I just wanted to mention that, that, that we had that meeting. Oh, okay. Thanks. That's really great news. Right. Yeah, that's excellent news. Um, so let's see. So let's move on to the chair's report. I only have two things to relate. And the first thing is just today I got a, an email from Chris Vandenbach. He wants to resign from the commission as of now uh, for personal reasons. And so uh, we, I'd like to, I think we could, we need to recruit another uh, adult member. Um, 
We also have a youth commissioner that's open, but we have a very good candidate. Uh, unfortunately, she doesn't turn 16 until October 1st. So uh, I need to discuss this with, uh, you know, city, uh, um, I got to discuss this about um, nominating her and uh, having maybe seat her before October 1st, but without voting privileges until our October meeting. But um, she's a student at Pioneer and she's uh, very dedicated to environmental issues. So, um, and then the other thing is that I'm a part of a group that's planning another trash talk tour. You know, we had one last year, it's going to be scheduled for September 18th. So I'm going to be leading the bicycle parade. So we're going to recruit like up to maybe 30 people to go on the entire route through bicycles. You know, we're basically visiting different places uh, like Allen School, the Murph, uh, the landfill, um, you know, the We Care Center, um, some of the businesses along South Industrial. And then um, we're going to rendezvous at Common Cycle and do some sites downtown and a Kiwanis Exchange place out on uh, Jackson Road. But I'll, uh, I'll keep everybody informed of that. Um, so that's scheduled for September 18th, which most importantly is not a football day, not a home football game. So let's see. So uh, next report from staff, Galen. Um, I have nothing to report at this time. Okay. So any items suggested for next agenda? I think we will have some solid waste stuff to discuss at the next agenda. So if you have any, please forward them to me um, before we before we schedule it in a, in a week or two. Um, so our next scheduled meeting is August 25th. Uh, it's the fourth uh, Thursday of the month. So this uh, again is the second opportunity for public commentary. So this is our second opportunity for persons to speak for up to three minutes. Please call 1-888-788-0099 and enter meeting ID 989-2851-1637. This information is also displayed on the meeting agenda and video feed. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand one by one using the last three digits of your phone number. In order to electronically raise your hand to indicate your desire to speak, please press star nine on your phone. You will hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area and mute any television or background sounds so that we may hear you clearly. Please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. And be patient, there is a delay of up to 30 seconds before a connection is established. Sorry, is there anybody on the line now, Galen? There is no one on the line for public commentary. Okay. We'll wait another 20 seconds or so. Okay. Meanwhile, I want to apologize for taking up more time for my presentation than I thought. I would, but you know, it's a complicated topic. And uh, so I will, uh, I will come up with some policy recommendations and some uh, recommendations about uh, safe products to buy. But uh, you know, most of the most of the authority uh, lies in Congress and the state legislature. And, you know, as is correct with the Constitution. <laughs> is there anybody on the line yet, um, Galen? 
uh, there's no one on the line. Okay, well, thank you. So this ends the second public commentary period. And so I, um, I adjourn this meeting at uh, 9.16 p.m. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Steve.